You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, I've really been looking forward to speaking to this architect. They've been collaborators with the industry for over 10 years. They have helped us create new standards for our products, and it really gives me immense joy and delight to welcome David Welsh from Welsh and Major Architects here today. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Is it really over 10 years? It is. Oh, my goodness. That's showing my time more than yours. (laughs) David, before we get talking and thinking a little bit more about bricks, and I do want to explore roof tiles because you were one of the first architects that started putting vertical roof tiles on a building. I thought you might want to go there. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the um, northwestern suburbs of Sydney when it was right at the very edge of the city back then. And I, I remember growing up when we had just paddocks around the back of our house. It was amazing. We just roam around the paddocks. There was a council ranger who was there to look for wild horses rather than dogs. It sounds real. It sounds like we're out in the wild west. But you wouldn't, I mean, northwest Sydney's quite a different place now. Mm. But we grew up, I say we, myself, my family, my sister, my mum and dad, this lovely house that they built. And it just had some really remarkable features that I sort of subconsciously took in as a kid. And then very recently, maybe three years ago, my dad sent me an email out of the blue and said, this is our house. It was designed by Nino Sydney, who was an architect who did a lot of work for Lendlease yeah. back in the day, probably most famous for the beachcomber houses. Okay. And suddenly it was like, wow, suddenly a lot of years later it all made sense that the these little qualities about the house that I grew up in were actually designed by an architect, which was quite a rare thing for most houses in the suburbs. And when you um, say that they built it, they've obviously commissioned an architect or yeah so it was a project home okay so that was one of my earlier fond memories as well going around to the project home villages (laughs) in Thornley and Carlingford and all those places looking at the Pevett and Severt houses and the civic homes and these early lend lease ones as well and um, yeah for the first 15 years of my life I was growing up in an architect design home and I didn't even know it oh And then so when did you know, so your parents weren't architects and they weren't builders? They weren't, no. Engineers or? No, my father was in advertising. Okay. Uh, So we did get to visit a lot of cool homes around the North Shore that his peers had built themselves and I assume that they are engaged architects. Some real fantastic Sydney school houses. I have these vague memories of visiting and going, wow, this is awesome. (laughs) So just all these little little bits started dripping into my tiny mind and mm. I suppose I started to develop an understanding or an appreciation at least of what good spatial design might be. Did you know any architects growing up? No. I didn't either. That's no. why it was I remember a friend of mine said that he wanted to be one and I just thought, wow, like I don't know anyone in that profession. Yeah. Well, mm. I mean, there was sort of out in the suburbs, there was not many people lived in an architect design no. home. We didn't know it, but we but we 
did. It wasn't really a profession that I really understood existed until studying art at high school. Okay, so talk to us about yeah. this. Yeah. So you had to do the written component of mm-hmm. art in at high school and we were told by our art teacher that we were going to be studying architecture and sculpture. And so suddenly the art textbook was thrust in front of all of us and we were given a crash course in architectural history, Mm. sort of starting from very early sort of pre-Christian BC times, looking at the city of Persepolis and uh, looking at classical architecture and neoclassical architecture. And then I think the book ended at the Sydney Opera House, so it sort of stopped in 1973. (laughs) And were you a drawer or a painter? I was a painter. Wow. So still do occasionally. So I think just the painting was something that I remember doing my major work in oils and you have to kind of break things down to get things to work and you start to look at the components and the way things or images get put together. And I think that process is something that has stuck with me perhaps and it's something that I've carried over into my professional life now. So just indulge me a little bit. So when you're saying about breaking things down, is that because of the nature of the paint, of the oil, and then how you... Yeah, the texture of the paint, the things that you have to thin it out with or thicken it up with, the amount of paint that you use on a surface. I remember I was looking at a few different artists and the way that they painted a folded sheet or the way that some material falls on the body. Mm. And you look at the shadow and the light play... And some artists, I think I was looking at Vanet perhaps, I can't remember, but five or six different colours are there in the shadow. And just I remember working that out, going, wow, that's amazing. I was just thinking white sheet, shadow, grey, something like that. How does oil paint differ from others? Like, There's the material qualities and the texture and the way it's applied. Yes. The fact that it takes weeks and weeks to, to dry right. is something that makes you approach it differently. Okay. The colours are different. Like those beautiful, big, vibrant, I'm looking out the window now, looking at the jacarandas that are still hanging hanging around. Yeah. All those kind of rich turquoises or crimsons and magentas and things like that, much more easily achieved with acrylics or something like that. Okay. But the oils, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a dark art and... You know, I'm just mucking around with it, of course, but it's great fun. The smells okay. of all the different mixtures and mediums that you get to play with. Yeah. The alchemy of things. Mm. Yeah, it's quite wonderful. And so you discover this profession of architecture and then when did you decide that that's what you were going to do? Probably when I failed second-year architecture. Oh, right. <laughs> and well, take us to the decision you've chosen to study it and... Yes, it was my fifth choice, I think, wow. on my form, and I was shipped off to Newcastle. So Newcastle Uni. Yeah, and I just loved it. I'd loved, quite loved living away mm-hmm. and finding out about the big wide world or big wide Newcastle. It was a bit of a slow process, I think, because there's the two-degree process that we followed. So I took four years to do my first three-year degree. Yep. I don't think I really fell in love with it until I went back for that master's degree, that second degree. And then I applied myself a little more and I just keep doing it. During that time, were there architects that had made an impression on you that you perhaps hadn't seen their work before? Absolutely. There Mm. was, I mean, we're all lucky enough to see the great works of 
you know, Glen Merkett's really great houses at that time, which was quite wonderful. But I was, we we're sort of also looking at the postmodernists in Europe, and I was particularly interested in uh, some of the Italian architects, Giuseppe Turani, Giorgio Grassi, Aldo Rossi to a lesser extent, although he seems to have made a bit of a resurgence in there's a lot of interest about his work again now. Mm. Quite rational, considered compositions, mm. but those wonderful drawings that you would see from some of the architects, mm. including some of the American architects as well, those axonometric drawings, those on yellow trace the beautiful paintings that Zaha Hadid was developing at the time, which I was lucky enough to see some of the actual paintings when we moved to London some years later. There was a real consideration of the composition of buildings and that was so inspiring and so wonderful. And during that time when then you were studying, did you travel? Because that seems to be a common theme. No. I wow. Didn't, I, I didn't get off the island until I was... I think 20, 27. Right, so you'd finished. Yeah, I'd yes. finished. I'd started work. I'd moved back to Sydney. So I'd been working for James Gross, Gross Bradley, for a, a couple of years. And then I had a couple of months before the visa that I was eligible for in the UK was going to lapse. So it's yep. time to go now or never okay. if I'm going to go away and work. And so I went with Chris, Chris Major, my partner overseas, and we worked and lived in London and it was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. And how long were you over there for? Uh, nearly three years. Yes. So it was pre-millennium and England and London was a buzz. There was a, a lottery funding that was being used to fund some really fantastic large architectural works. The, oh. the Millennium Dome was probably the biggest one that was the, or the most famous one that was yeah. happening in London. I was working for a a smaller firm called Lifshitz Davidson who had done a, a number of kind of important smaller works, mm. um, social housing, some quite elaborate restaurants for Harvey Nichols as well. So it was quite a range of things. But we did get access to see all of these other architects as well. We were working in the same building as Richard Rogers down at Hammersmith and the Thames Wharf Studios. That was the complex that Richard Rogers had set up the River Cafe just started up as well. There was a young Jamie Oliver who was yes. hanging around as a dish pig <laughs> doing his work down there. It was a really vibrant time to be in and around London. And what did you notice outside of, I guess, the cultural differences, but just from an architectural perspective, what were the biggest differences that you noticed? The biggest thing was the access to technology, I think. Okay. And also at the same time, oddly, it was grounded in a real sort of craftsmanship, a real making. So all of those, there must have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of foundries that all started up for the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Some of them were still kicking on in their own way 100 years later or something. Mm. So if you wanted to make something out of cast metal, mm. like a whole component of a building, say a balcony or something special, then there were people who could get that done for you. So you could make things from scratch out of any material. Whereas I think the way that I had been working in Australia before then was that we assembled things. Okay. We found existing systems and we adapted them sometimes or we would make do with what we've got and turn that into something special. Mm -hmm. So that was quite an interesting learning curve that you could do things differently. And 
I mean, we did touch on it before, but I just wondered how you and Chris met. Ah, at uni. Right. So both studying architecture. Mm -hmm. So we didn't form the practice until well and truly after we got back from London. Okay. Yeah, so we've got that common interest in architecture. Yes. Which is always, you know, it's we're still both incredibly passionate about what we do, which is a lovely extra to yes. our relationship. Yeah. We can design quite differently, so we have complementary skills as yeah. well. And I think that obviously benefits what the output of our practice is. Did you work together on the dreaded group projects at university or was that something no. that you were so you just knew each other but yeah we just wow. did, yeah sort of in the same kind of uh, in the same orbits I suppose yes. it was a very small year in Newcastle too I think there were 27 of us that graduated in the end and all of those late nights in the studio a relatively close bunch of people mm. so you know still a good chunk of them are friends to this day. Before we get on to some of your projects, I'm just wondering whether you could talk to us a little bit about cheesemaking because I've read that you're <laughs> an occasional cheesemaker. Where did this come from? I'm more of a lapsed cheesemaker Oh, okay. Now, but right. I think I do have a certificate in cheesemaking somewhere. How did that come about? I think it was a Father's Day present. Oh, right. <laughs> I got okay. sent on a course. Okay. So, yeah, it was just another thing to make. And yeah. it's quite fun. And this is sort of the things that are talked about with painting, all the, the alchemy of putting things together yeah. and watching things change mm. in front of you. But... No, I feel quite guilty now. I've got to start things up again. That wasn't the intention. (laughs) So, and did you and Chris always have in your mind that you would start practice together or? No, Mm. no, we didn't. It sort of didn't fall in our laps so much, but the opportunities arose. Our early projects were for friends, really. Mm -hmm. So there was also our house as well that we did way back. So... People say never work for friends or... I was going to say it's such a big, it's such an emotional decision. It is. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't work for everyone. No. But, <laughs> but, no, it was something that I think was quite fun to do. I think parameters were set and people expected that, no, this is a... It's got to be a professional working relationship and we agreed on the fees and all those sorts of rather boring pragmatic things but we did that and that set the parameters and off we went Mm -hmm. so yeah we've still been working for friends on and off to this day so yeah I wouldn't necessarily say don't work for friends as a sort of blanket rule Mm -hmm. but you obviously had some good boundaries there depends on the people were there any of those early projects that you really felt you know defined what you were doing or had your early fingerprints on them yeah, I think from the very the very first one, which was a little extension to a house in Borden Street in Newtown. Yep. That was for a good friend of ours. The brief was that he just wanted privacy in quite a congested little part of Newtown. And we got to experiment with a particular building type, which was precast concrete. Yes. Which was usually laid in kind of a 100-metre long uh, like cake tins mm. out, out in industrial estates and then you just chop it up. Yep. And so we bought this rather large industrial system into a small context in the city, Sydney, and it worked quite well. So it's still hanging in there. Walked past it the other day. It's still good. Yeah, and that, I think, got us interested in any material has its merits. Okay. There's no such thing as a good material or a bad material. They've just got their limits and some are appropriate for a particular condition. 
And so, yeah, as each project came up, we'd like to say that we're not dogmatic mm. about our material choice or mm. the way we approach things. Some things lend themselves to the circumstance and then we sort of find out we have those little leads that occur and then we follow them down a path and see where the architecture ends up. Because one of the, obviously the first projects where you caught our eye was the house with tiles on it. And I think that led you then, I think, to writing the brief for another competition. It but did. maybe just we won't spend too much time on it, but how did that come about and, and mm. why were tiles the choice there? Well, its context is Haberfield, which yes. is the garden suburb of Sydney or one of them. So, I mean, when you fly into Sydney, two of the things you notice are the terracotta roofs and the green trees and that really rich combination of colours and materials. Mm. We wanted to extend this house in a conservation area. Mm. We wanted to do it in a contemporary way. And what appeared as a quite restrictive list of things we could and couldn't do, very particular about the materials that you could use, roof tiles or terracotta Marseille roof tiles being one of them, Mm. we saw that as an opportunity to just run with. So Mm. we just used it on the roofs, on the walls, in as many different places as we could. Because it's it's amazing projects like that one have, I guess, created this demand for us to put fact sheets out for other architects to do that with vertical tiling. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was funny because we could see there were examples of vertical tiles around. Pizza Hut's. Old Pizza Hut restaurant. Oh, it's true. So we knew it had happened before and I think there was a few, maybe Enrico Taglietti might have used some Mm. tiles on walls or some facade components in Canberra in the past. So we knew it could be done but we didn't know how. So we got in touch with the various manufacturers and we did come across some technical consultants who had worked on Pizza Huts in the 70s. I didn't know and that. And they said, oh, yeah, it's really easy. This is okay. what you do. Wow. The builder got on board and it was quite a cost-effective, quick way of cladding a building. Yep. And in a material that just ages beautifully as well. Mm. And then just now probably looking at some of your more recent projects and obviously doing so well in the awards, what is it about brick that you enjoy designing? Brick is a complicated and simple material at the same time. It comes back to that idea of assembling buildings, like, you know, it's a basic component that can be put together in a myriad of different ways. But then when it all comes together, that kind of alchemy happens again where you can get really sculptural, wonderful surfaces. The quality of the brick assembly system is part of it, but there's also the material, the earth that it's sourced from as well. We all know the phrase to touch the earth lightly, that sort of beautiful sentiment of being responsible and respectful for the environment in which we build. Mm. But perhaps we should be more thinking about of really engaging with the earth, Mm. you know, really respecting and becoming part of the environment that we build upon. And what better material to do that with than brick, which is of the earth. And that's something that I think in particular in the house that we did, the seagrass house, where we saw some colours of the local environment and then the brick growing out of that environment was something that was quite poetic and quite special. And it sits so beautifully and, again, it it does lightly touch, although there's presence about it, but it's not intruding. It's very much growing out of the site, we Mm. like to think. It's built on a sort of terraced platform of brick, which are almost the same colours as the earth around it. And it's going to age beautifully. I'm looking forward to seeing 
how that goes. And talking to the clients on and off as we do, they're sort of just falling more and more in love with it, which is quite lovely. And just in terms of the concept and creation of that, was that, and the collaboration obviously with your clients, but was the material choice obvious from the beginning or? Yes. Okay. Because there's another more pragmatic component to it as well in that it's in a flame zone. Yeah, so it's, it's a bushfire zone. Mm. So that starts to, to lend itself more to masonry construction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other ways to do it as well. But the combination of these different things, the pragmatism of the bushfire component, the poetics of the site all came together with this particular product that we used there that we'd used on a few projects before mm. as well. I think uh, there was a house we did in Annandale yep. which used a small component of the sort of longer, more uh, Roman bricks in part of the landscape, but it also used a sand stock brick as well. And we wanted to, we liked the idea of designing an endemic house. Like if you could source all your materials from within 50 k's of, yes. of the site, could you do it? We couldn't, but most of the house, which is this sandstock brick, is within 50 k's of the site. Do you know, I'm hearing that a lot more from architects now that okay. really where the materials are coming from yeah. or where they have been is becoming more and more important. Yeah. Yeah. Our practice moved to becoming carbon neutral a couple of years ago now. Mm. And a key component of our sort of carbon footprint is the travel. Mm. And so we've sort of got our own house in order, so to speak. So we should apply that also to the buildings that we do as well. Mm. It's a lot more complex when you're trying to work out the carbon footprint of a material. Mm. You can get things from overseas that are actually quite, uh, have a small carbon footprint. But I think it's a good start. Yes. To stay local. Yes. There's a whole lot of good reasons to be doing it. That's right. You did so many different embellishments with the seagrass house, particularly the stepping of the brick. And I just wondered whether you could talk about when you were executing that. How did that go? Well, we spent a lot of time with the clients Mm. down at... There was a house there before. Oh, okay. But it was unfortunately riddled with termites. It was a self-demolishing structure. It didn't Mm. have much more time to last. But we sat in those sites and we worked out where and how they lived in the house at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they lived at the edges. So often you see with these sort of seaside houses, there's these big balconies and they're kind of a restrictor, oddly, that... You don't get to be out at the edge of the building looking out over the valley or down to the beach. These guys had sat right at the very edge. They put their kitchen table right near the edge of the building and they sort of lean out the window. Oh, wow. Okay. And that idea of sort of leaning out, almost leaning out to the the side of a ship. Yep. was kind of a nice idea, having no balconies there. And so when we decided that brick was the correct choice of material, we worked out ways to actually get that brick structure to hang out over the bush. So there was that corbelled edge that starts to sort of step out and the brickwork provides the structure, if you like, to support the people as they're perched out there looking out over the valley. Is there anything that has surprised you with brick over the years? Yes. It's just so varied. There's so many bricks out there at the moment. It's astonishing how many, like, we're a relatively small country. Mm. 
there's hundreds of bricks to choose from. There's still more people coming into the market now offering new bricks, sort of more, I suppose, sustainably sourced bricks. They've got different materials in the mix as well, handmade bricks. We've become aware of bricks from overseas as well, but looking at those I think is important to see how we might be able to make things differently here. I do notice we were talking a little bit before just around the US and I I do notice the major difference I see in the US is that their bricks are like less colourful or they tend to sort of go with this monolithic colour scheme, you know, whereas I do feel in Australia the blending is there, new colours are introduced, we're maybe a little bit more creative with our application. Yeah, and Mm. people are still looking to push the boundaries even more. Mm. There's some really rich, vibrant brick colours out there now, like Mm. really sort of deep pinks, but there's sort of 15 variations on that colour and moving them all together is something that we're hoping to experiment with in some upcoming projects. But, yeah, I think people really love the idea of a product or a material that you can really get into and get your hands dirty with, Mm. figuratively speaking, Mm. of course. It's that honesty, Mm. I think, of just playing in the dirt. That's what it comes down to really, isn't it? There's something nice about that, don't there you think? There is. I think, you know, I mean, a lot of people sort of say that with bricks and, and roof tiles that, yeah, you know, they've all been handled oh, by yeah. human hands. Yeah. And I think that's it is a nice thought, you know, when yeah. you think about it just brings that humanity to it in a very subtle way. Yeah. Mm. And even because um, I remember going out to one of the brick factories and seeing some of the robots that are used in the process as well. They're pretty mm. cool. But there's a smell too. It's a really wonderful, earthy yeah. smell to the bricks. Mm. And there's so many different characteristics that come through there. There's just lots of different qualities combined into that one little construction unit. And having been in the industry now for a period of time... Thank you. <laughs> And you've sort of alluded to a little bit around what you're doing to keep things carbon neutral and we've probably gone over some of those aspects. But what sort of advice or what would you hope to see in the profession in the coming years? What advice would you have to young architects that are just finishing now their studies? I think our environmental responsibilities have been, I think we've talked about them, but we've essentially skirted around them. Mm -hmm. by and large. I think it's more important. It's embodied in our younger architects, I think. When I was going through, it wasn't really taught or considered. Mm. I think recent graduates have a better understanding of our place in the world and our carbon footprint and as architects what effect that might make Mm -hmm. or that might have. I think that would be my main piece of advice to anyone sort of coming through at the moment be true to those environmental standards that you hold dear Mm -hmm. don't let them go because that particularity is going to lead to somewhere special Mm -hmm. it's going to lead to better architecture it's going to be difficult but I think it's quite an exciting sort of threshold that we're all standing on that we can make things better if we consider the environmental footprint of what we do at the very core of our design process. And you've talked a little bit about some of the projects that you've got coming up. How has your design approach, has that changed much? It has. It's part of the environmental concerns, but it's a relatively recent journey for us. It's designing with and designing for country mm-hmm. and engaging with uh, First Nations peoples to 
understand what the land is about, what the implications of building on this land are. There's the cultural repercussions of what we do. It's a conversation that we've only just gone on. There's heaps of questions being asked of us. We don't have any real answers yet, but we've found it to be quite exciting. And I can't believe that I've got to my age that I am and haven't really engaged with First Nations people, their cultures, the generosity that we've been shown from the people we're working with at the moment, just telling us about the plants, the trees, the seasons, Mm. all these things that are, you know, there's tens of thousands of years of knowledge there and we haven't really acknowledged that until now. I couldn't agree with you more and I was speaking with a colleague actually and we were actually talking about the awards and, you know, for me it's been a similar kind of journey in the sense of why wouldn't you not collaborate, acknowledge. I I really enjoy learning from Mm -hmm. it and then having travelled around the country a lot during COVID, just seen that this culture actually knows how to deal with, you know, fires. (laughs) They dealt with them pretty well and they know how to deal with the comings of the seasons and and what the different signs in nature mean. Mm. It almost is like, why haven't we asked them? But I do feel that for our generation in particular, we just were never taught that when we were younger, whereas I see in my own children there's a real emphasis on it and I think it's wonderful. But we... We weren't really taught no, much about it. Nothing at all. Mm. And, and what we're learning now, I mean, it's within the last 18 months. It's really, really recent. It's terrible that it's taken this long, but it's fantastic that it's happening. And I remember one of our favourite friends is um, Yvonne Weldon, who does these beautiful Welcome to Countries, and I think it was back in 2019, and she was talking about, I think we'd called the awards down to earth, but how play was from the earth and how much it meant and I just thought it so significant you know and it, it was wonderful that she was able to shine that light on it for me. Yeah. The different ochres and colours and meanings behind things and the way things change from you know not from say from Sydney to Melbourne but say from here to five kilometres away or down towards the river things change and people are aware of these subtle changes and the different seasons and where we live and work is this traditionally was looked at as six seasons in a year. Yes. Which is kind of cool. So just all these things that we're finding out. We hope to get a chance to sort of walk local country too with some of the elders very soon. We've had a few chats with different people and uh, just the openness with sharing all this info. Mm. It's so, so amazing. It's humbling too, isn't it? It is. Mm. It's quite a generous thing to offer after the terrible things that have happened in the past absolutely yeah well david i've really enjoyed this conversation we're now just going to go into a little bit of a rapid fire question okay all answers are acceptable no bad answers no bad answers reading the news a newspaper or online online handwriting or typing oh handwriting for sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? Oh, I'm liking the e-pen at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Books. That's easy. What is important to you, style or substance? Substance with style. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Oh, it's going to be TV shows at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Antique or modern? I like a modern antique. <laughs> Call or text? Text. 
travel back in time or into the future? Gee, no, I think I'd go back in time. Exterior or interior? Exterior. That's a tricky one. Video games or board games? Uh, video games, but they have to be kind of as near analogue as possible. Form or function? Uh, form. And with relation to design, complex or simple? Simple, but it's a pretty complex thing to get to simple, isn't it? I think we all agree with that. Yeah. David, thank you so much for joining us and for everything you've done for the industry and to constantly stimulate us and provide us with different ways to try new things. Oh, thanks, Elizabeth. It's been fun. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.